Hello, everybody. We've got a great interview for you on the PX3 show. Paul Daling is our guest. He knows all about corruption in Chicago. We're not talking about just the stuff that you might see in the news right now. We're talking about the history. The phrase 1890 is repeated multiple times, but you're going to love it. I swear. It's a great interview. Before we start, though. Let's remind everybody how we make these happen. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you can go to get to our Patreon. If you do that and you sign up at the $3 level, you get two, count them, two bonus minisodes. One on Monday, one on Friday. I'll tell you what, for all those stories that break on Thursday, they break on Friday. Bad news. People like to bury it on holidays. Those are the episodes where you can get the rapid reaction, the emergency reaction that you know you want. Take politics seriously.com. All right. Enough screwing around. Let's go ahead and get on down to the second city, a toddling town, the city with the big shoulders, the city of too many nicknames. We're going to Chicago, baby. Politics, 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 politics. My guest today is Paul Daling. He is a journalist and tour guide in the city of Chicago, and he's going to give us a little primer on why when people mention Chicago and if there's something that they don't agree with or something that seems off, they just kind of throw their hands up and say, well, that's Chicago for you. He's going to explain what comes, uh, what, what the history was to lead us up to that point. So let's go ahead and introduce him. Paul, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. How you doing? Oh, man. I, I am so glad to to speak with you just because I've long been fascinated with this subject. And uh, I feel like now we, we kind of have a contemporary case with the as much attention as the Jesse Smollett uh, situation got uh, the city that now... Uh, yet again, we have this kind of uh, rise of, well, that's Chicago for you. So let, let's go ahead and start here in the most basic. Uh, I just landed uh, from a, a alien spacecraft and know nothing of American culture. Why does Chicago have the reputation of being a corrupt city? Chicago has the reputation of being a corrupt city because it is very bad at hiding its corruption. <laughs> People brag about it. Um, there's uh, Occasionally I like to do some number crunching and you just get into some nerdy data stuff just because, you know, didn't date much in high school. Uh, and so in prep for this, I sort of uh, looked at some of the facts and figures around uh, corruption numbers. And there's really no way to sort of quantify corruption because if someone gets caught, that means the system worked. Right. Sure. People always try and look at like, oh, well, Chicago is the most corrupt because they have the most per capita corruption convictions. And it's like, well, when someone's convicted, they were very bad at corruption. Yes. Um, so, I mean, how do you even quantify most 
corrupt. Uh, a lot of the places look at you know breakdowns of numbers and say, well, this city has the most corruption convictions, and this city doesn't, and then this city is down there. They usually use the FBI data for that, even though the FBI data specifically says don't do that. Um, but those things are usually end up being like uh, population maps, basically, when they do it. It's like, well, if you look at this, New York is the most corrupt city. And then a number two is Los Angeles. And then number three is Chicago. And then number four is Houston. And it's like, no, no, that's just, no, no, honey, yeah. honey, no. <laughs> that's just population. You're yeah. just looking at population numbers. There's just enough people that there enough, you know, there will be a representative sample of corruption <laughs> based on how many people live in a place. <laughs> Yeah. And then there are all these other ways of trying to look at corruption because it's trying to look at this invisible problem. Um, some of the pe people, uh, one of the one of the studies I found most re interesting recently was uh, Perception Index. And that's basically a group of academics send out surveys to journalists covering politics beats in different states and ask them, how corrupt do you think things are there? Mm -hmm. And that actually was very interesting because apparently Kentucky uh, ranks really? very highly in that as like super corrupt, but no one can really prove it. Um, and also Louisiana, which has a reputation for insane corruption too. There's this famous quote about politics and I've heard it said about two different places, mm -hmm. uh, bury me in blank so I can keep active in politics after I'm dead. <laughs> yes. I've heard it said about Chicago. I've heard it said about Louisiana. So, but in this particular perception index study, uh, none of the reporters from Louisiana even bothered to return <laughs> the survey. So Louisiana wasn't counted on it. So it's really hard to say why, like the, there's no real numbers that can back up Chicago being like the corruption capital of the world. Uh, not saying it's not true. Yeah. Not saying it is true. I'm saying when you look at these things, it's an invisible crime. If people, if we haven't, if we know what happened, they failed at it. Sure. Right. You can tell the murder rate by the number of dead bodies, but the numbers of kickbacks, the numbers of bribes, numbers of, you know, little handoffs to make sure that the corner restaurant you like doesn't get nabbed for the uh, health code violations. Those are invisible crimes. So historically, and I'm about to get savage online by 20 million commenters who, who think I'm an idiot. <laughs> But historically, my theory has always been that Chicago sort of revels in it in this weird way. Okay. It's this, uh, the image of Chicago is the image of sort of a strong man mayor, you know, bragging about how he'll get that construction project done or don't worry about it. Um, I got a guy at the hall, you know, which is basically just the hall is what they call city hall. And when people say, I got a guy at the hall, it usually means they're bragging that their cousin can get some codes through they can get something done they can make something happen and a lot of the so a lot of the politics of chicago actually goes back sort of historically way back and i find it interesting that i think one of the sort of turning points for uh chicago corruption in my mind at least mm -hmm. is in the 1890s a guy named charles tyson yerkes and uh he uh, came. He came from. He he created the L. Basically, he was a train magnate. He created the downtown L train system. That if you're making a movie and you want a cheap way of showing people it's in Chicago, you just get some shots of the the train going by. Yeah. And uh, he came from out east, and 
in the autobiography of one of, of, the, of the mayor of the time, uh, Carter Harrison Jr., uh, there's this great line that I'm paraphrasing. Uh, he brought a more sophisticated form of corruption than the native type. Uh, so that's when, you know, Chicago really learned how to professionalize corruption. I mean, there's been crime and corruption and abuse of powers going all the way back to the beginning. Uh, I recently did a story for the Chicago Reader, which is a, a local alt-weekly, mm-hmm. about the first murder in the city of Chicago, which took place in 1812. And um, I found some evidence that says it was a, a political cover-up. It was cover-up for political corruption involving silencing someone who's complaining to the War Department about the Sutler contract to be the shopkeeper who gets to sell you know, tobacco and uh, whiskey to the troops oh, at Fort wow. Dearborn. So, and so, and so, it, it was, um, it was a, it was a kickback crime that then was uh, covered up with a, with the first official murder. That was, that's my theory, at least. <laughs> a couple other, <laughs> uh, a couple other people looking into this have uh, done that. And so, I'm reading the story about like 1812. Yeah. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, well, that seems familiar. Well, that seems familiar. Uh, for example, one of the <laughs> one of one of the characters in this particular story, um, he informed the War Department about huge corruption and bribes and kickbacks, and they got rid of the guy who was doing the corruption and bribes, and then replaced him with all new people who were doing their own corruption and bribes. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's right, really ineffectual reformer, uh, basically reform creating more of a job opening <laughs> than like you know, actual substantial change. Um, All right. Well, here, hold on. Let, let, yeah. Let's take, let's take one real quick step back for, for, for folks. When, when we talk about corruption, I'm going to rattle off a few things and you tell me if I'm, if I'm leaving anything off the list, primarily you're talking about kickbacks like we were just talking about. So this is, you, you pay mm-hmm. a little money to somebody in a position of power that should be a impartial arm of the government but then next thing you know your project gets to the top of the list you get to be the contractor because you are either sharing the profits or outright paying off a, a government official uh yeah uh, you know uh, and then the, that cousin which is just you are in power and now you're making things easier for your friends uh you know for for whatever uh, reason and then we can kind of lump in may, any association with organized crime there so maybe turning a blind eye to a crime that is outward and ongoing. And then, as you mentioned before, about staying active in politics once you're six feet under, the idea of, uh, of fabricating votes by, you know, oftentimes having people who have long since taken their last breath actively per, you know, participating in modern elections. Is there anything yeah. that I'm leaving off there? Yeah, I mean, those are the basics. Um, you know, just trying to uh, change the votes, you know, make make the vote anything other than what the people want it to be. Uh, so that would be probably a, a bigger category than uh, just fabricating votes, because that doesn't happen too often anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. It did happen. Um, but the majority of voter fraud these days is not by people, you know, as the president thinks, putting on a new hat and voting twice. No, no, no. Uh, now it's more in the counting. Look at North Carolina. Um, so. Basic, basic messing with the votes. Yeah, I, th- I think is a, is a is a better way to put that last. Make, make, making sure that the vote turns out the way that you'd like the vote to turn out, and, and, and there's yeah. there's plenty of tools in that toolbox to get that done. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think those are the big categories. I think may, maybe we should just sort of pick one and focus on that rather than talk about, because uh, the tour is three hours long. Right? Okay. Chicago Corruption I- Walking Tour is three hours long, uh, down from five. <laughs> and a lot of cases have popped up since then. Uh, so we could literally be here from now till Tuesday if we're talking about individual cases. Sure, so, sure, sure. All right. Well, yeah. then here, let me let me let me lead with this because I have a very deep fascination with the 1960 election and Chicago, and specifically uh, vote uh, uh, manipulation factors into one of my favorite conspiracies of all time, which is uh, uh, of course that there was some chicanery in Illinois, the state of Illinois, that helped uh, JFK win his election. Uh, uh, so let's let, let, let's focus on 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 that. Uh, uh, what what? Well, I guess where where do we where do we start here? Uh, we start with we start with patronage. Patron. All right, go. Patronage. Okay, so um, basically, patronage is in Chicago. There's a very horrible racist phrase because most of the horrible racism happens in Chicago. Is it was, after all, the city that Martin Luther King said could teach the South how to hate. Um, <laughs> there's a phrase in Chicago in the back in the day called, who, it's who's your Chinaman. And okay. what, the, what that means is who's your patron? Who is your political overlord? Who's your boss? No one knows why uh, the term for this was called Chinaman, uh, but it is. It was. Uh, even on the tours uh, last year. I was talking and you know doing this tour, and there's this guy who'd worked for Cook County for 30 years. He's probably like 60, and he recalled the first day on the job. He was working in the mental mental ward of the of uh, the the jail, Cook County Jail, and a guy just walked up to him and said, "Who's your Chinaman?" And he <laughs> said, "What?" He didn't hadn't heard the phrase. Yeah. And eventually, he picked it up from context clues, and he he said, "Wait a minute, do you think I'd pay someone to work here?" Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but let's start with a guy, actually, uh, whose power came from patronage. Of course, talking about the man on five himself, the boss, uh, Richard J. Daly. He was, until recently, until Sun passed him, the longest serving mayor of the city of Chicago. Um, he ruled the city with an iron fist for decades. A few years ago, a group of academics uh, created a poll of different of 160, 170 different academics from different disciplines about who is the greatest mayor in American history. Um, they, you know, talked to journalism professors, political science professors, history professors, and they determined that the greatest mayor in American history was Fiorello LaGuardia out of New York. Mm-hmm. Richard J. Daly, they determined, was the sixth greatest mayor. So sixth. the guy who um, ordered his police department to shoot uh, uh, protesters during the 60s race riots <laughs> shoot on sight was named the sixth greatest mayor in American history. The guy who said the policeman is not there to uh, create disorder, the policeman is there to preserve disorder was named the sixth greatest mayor in American history. Um, it was a time of uh, the guy whose policies uh, uh, enriched his friends while creating slum conditions in Chicago public housing was, uh, where, where there were majority black and brown Residents, maybe the sixth greatest mayor in American history. 
Now I would I would I would, I would I would yeah. I would imagine that that is probably because he's the sixth most famous mayor in American history, right? Because I don't know if there's probably. any kind of rolling scale of gr- current great mayor. If you were to ask me to, hey, you 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 can't name who was mayor of uh, of of Dayton, Ohio, in 1911, <laughs> no, and you call yourself a, a political podcaster. Exactly. Sir. Yeah. I, I I mean, hell, yeah. I, I don't even know the current <laughs> rankings. So I mean, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm way out. Well, but the re- yeah the re- the reasoning a lot of these people gave was that. Chicago was growing. Right? Okay. Uh, Daly was mayor from the nineteen from the fifties till the seventies. Uh, stagflation crisis, uh, rust, I mean, decline of American manufacturing, Rust Belt being born, Detroit's faltering, St. Louis is faltering. Chicago's putting up skyscrapers. Picasso is just giving us statues because we're just so great. Yeah. And a lot of that's because Richard J. Daly from the fifth floor of City Hall, Man on Five, was one of his nicknames ruled the city with an iron fist and under him things were growing things were it was the city that works to to coin his to adopt a a a phrase that was used at the time now daily hugely powerful person as uh his influence spread from the smallest south side polling place all the way up to the kennedy white house uh it's a conspiracy theory that you mentioned Mm -hmm. i happen to agree with it although it's though there's a law journal article a couple years ago I can find it for you after we get off. Mm-hmm. After we get off the phone, that that looked at it and said he probably Kennedy probably would have won Illinois without the chicanery, just not by as much. Yeah, um, I can find I can find that for you. Yeah, well, but basic. Yeah. So so the way I understand it is that, uh, and this is is partly based in terms of another larger rivalry between the city of Chicago and uh, offices downstate. That there was a justification. Uh, that you know, if if uh, people downstate in Illinois, the Republicans were going to steal a vote, then we'll steal two to make sure that they that we keep them honest. And 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 there is uh, uh, a a larger kind of uh, fight there. But in general, the, the I, I, I refuse to believe Richard J. Daley ever bothered to justify anything. Okay, sure, yeah. At least this is this is how I, I as as just yeah. some, an amateur fascinated with it. Have have understood it, but that there through various different means, uh, the vote that came out of Chicago that day in 1960 was not exactly what you know would have would have happened, and and it was a close yeah. election. Yes, yes, and I truly believe there were some stolen votes. I truly believe there were these these. <clears throat> I truly believe these stories, um, but I guess to understand Chicago, it's a lot about how the the levers that were pulled to get these these votes. And a lot of that has to do with patronage positions. Gotcha. Um, and patronage positions is a lot to do with, is, is it's basic is hiring. Um, and there's this position, one position that's, uh, that's more influential. It's like the atom of the patronage system of the Chicago machine. And that is a guy who, a precinct committeeman. It's a, in a lot of places, it's a do nothing position. You're assigned to a polling place. You're supposed to find out if they have enough vote for Smith signs and that all the little ladies, you know, know there's an election on Tuesday. In Chicago, this do nothing position, volunteer position with the party. It was more than just like a volunteer position. That was your connection to City Hall. That was your connection to services. Right. Yeah. Um, That was your connection to, hey, they didn't clear my street. They said they were going to clear my street. You know, that was then they didn't or hey 
you know, they said my plumbing was out of date at the restaurant. It's going to cost me $10,000 to <laughs> fix this. You know, who do I talk to? Who do I get to fix this? Who's my guy at the hall? Right. And then the, the precinct guy comes in and he's your link to city services. And this actually works very well. Uh, there's a study I found from the 1930s, University of Chicago, and people actually rated uh, the, the political organizations at better at giving services during the Depression than all your Jane Adams is, all your social reformers. The people trusted the, what, the, what, the, what the party gave them hmm. more than what the reformers gave them, just in terms of social services. So he was your guy. He was your friend. Yeah. He was the one who could get the parking ticket fixed. Who could, he played poker with the city inspector on Tuesdays, and he could make sure that you know, they, gave, they, they went easy on your, on your faulty wiring at your restaurant. Gotcha. And he could, you know, fix tickets. He could get your kid out of that drunk driving thing. But there was a cost. You had to do things. You had to pay him, pay him off or you had, to, you had to be loyal to. And a lot of this came down to sort of, uh, you know, I'll do this for you. And by the way, we happen to be selling tickets for the ward ball. <laughs> you had to toe the line. Yeah. A lot, yeah. Uh, in uh, Mike Royko's great book, Boss. And oh, and it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just money. Uh, Mike, Ro- Mike Royko, he's a reporter in Chicago for decades, uh, died in the '90s, I believe. But he um, now someone online is going to come up and say, "Well, actually, he died in 2000." Whatever. Um, <laughs> That's fine. No, no, I mean, story. yeah, my, yeah my, 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 Mike Royko, a legendary reporter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he told the story in Boss about a um, a restaurant tour in uh, Bucktown neighborhood. Now it's all hipster stuff. Back then it was Polish Broadway who put up a sign for a candidate that Daly didn't endorse up in his restaurant and was happened to be visited by a different city inspector every day for a week. (laughs) Each one saying, Oh, you know, that's going to cost you a lot of money. Oh, those pipes are terrible. Why don't you take on it? So the loyalty was ingrained into the system. Yeah. Now, if the votes didn't go the right way in your little precinct or a level up in your ward, you were out of a job. You were just done. And not out of your volunteer job, you know, working for the party, but you're out of your job with the city of Chicago or Cook County. You know, your do nothing job that they got you because you were really good at bringing in the votes on election day. Yeah. Yeah, uh, patronage hires. So, 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 this, so, this, so this basically sets up the nobody needs to get any instruction. Everyone knows the score and things just happen because the system exactly. has been set up and reinforced to make sure that it happens. Because it's your incentive. Yeah. Right? And that's a great job. Like gave you a perverse incentive. Yeah. And because you're plugged in, everyone's doing you favors. You know, you always you're you're always going to be greeted. Uh, uh, you know, when when you're down the street, this is a a position of prominence. Now, it, it sounds to me, and this kind of gives us a segue to get into another element that I'm very curious about. That when you talk about loyalty and making sure that every the, the thing goes the way that you should, and and nobody above you is embarrassed. This sounds very organized crime-esque. And Chicago also has a very uh, rich history in terms of the uh, mob and organized crime in general. 
Mm-hmm. Can can you talk a little bit about the link between the two, government and organized crime? So I'm going to start back in 1890s. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, with with these two guys, Hanky Dinkenna and Bathhouse Coughlin. Coughlin. Uh, now they were uh, sort of there for the early days, and they were linked both to they were the first ward aldermen together this was back in the day where each ward had two aldermen and they also ran organized crime uh, in the, well they ran they they ran the vice district we're not yet to the point where they're running organized crime they ran the vice district which was called the levy it was chicago's red light district and hinky dink and bathhouse represented the area and they represented the people there and there was a lot of you know prostitution going around there was a lot of uh crime or drugs, uh, you know, it was a way to, it was a, it was a, a rough area of town where you'd go to find a drink, a card game, some company by the hour and get your ass kicked, maybe. <laughs> so, um, now they, um, they were linked with the organized crime over the years, but I think, but they sort of started not because they were good or bad or anything like that, but because they owned bars. Now, 1890s was the area of era of the saloon keeper alderman, because bars were really great places to get stuff done. You could go in at any hour. Mm-hmm. It made sense to talk to anyone. There were sort of social networks, and believe me, those drunks would vote for you. Yeah. A hinky dink and bathhouse at their bar literally would give free drinks for the property cast properly cast vote. It was like they were just organizing the rummy class. Gotcha. They they. The the bar, the work or Hinky Dink's bar, the Workman's Exchange, was below a transient hotel, still a transient hotel today, strangely enough, <laughs> or a, a single resident occupancy SRO, uh, still a transient hotel, uh, and it was called the Alaska Hotel, and they said at the time it, it could hold 300 men or 600 during election year, right? <laughs> so, they, and they were really good at what they did. Now, this is also when sort of the the crime the organized crime ties sort of started, I guess. Uh, someone's going to come up and point out something happened 30 years earlier. But uh, there's a guy, Big Jim Colosimo, who was sort of the first guy to really run Chicago. So the first guy, big guy. Now he got to start working on working the political side under uh, Coughlin, who's a precinct committeeman, precinct captain on our bathhouse Coughlin. And he became the guy to sort of unify Chicago, right? Okay. Now he was shot and killed. No, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm missing a step. Now he was. Uh, he brought in a guy from New York named Johnny Torrio to help him uh, run things, and Johnny Torrio got in a, brought in a guy named Al Capone to help run him run things. Uh, so uh, Big Jim shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Johnny Torrio was shot at, survived the assassination attempt, but decided it was getting too hot, so he moved back to Italy. Uh, Mussolini was cracking down on mafia at the time, so then he moved back to Brooklyn. And then this left Al Capone running things. Reader's Digest version, Al Capone was a hot mess. <laughs> right? Should be, and it's not Scarface, hot mess. Yeah. He brought in a lot of heat from above. People who had been for decades think, okay, let Chicago do its thing, that's fine. You know, all the stuff that makes the great mob movies, the violence in the street, the... And there was a lot of that beforehand, too. Um, <clears throat> I'm skipping over some a couple very notable mob-connected aldermen uh, of the early 1900s. But Al Capone, bad at being 
an organized crime leader. Okay, so I'm sorry I, I, to say. I, I, I feel like I feel like we're, we're we're getting into this theme of the most famous people to do a thing are often the worst people to do the thing. <laughs> Why do you want to be really well known as the head of a covert criminal empire? That's my question. It's a fair point. I would like to be the guy behind the curtain, but um, now during this whole time, the relationship between the mob and city hall sort of changed, shifted. Uh, Bathhouse Scotland, Hinky and Kenna. They'd order Big Jim Colosimo around. They'd tell him what to do. Okay. Al Capone told them what to do. He ordered them around. They didn't care. They were older by then. They were wealthy. Uh, Hinky Dink Kenna was particularly fond of just sort of holding court at the cigar shop he opened up after Prohibition closed down his bar. Right. So Al Capone, bad at being a mob boss, brought a lot of heat from above from people who were really willing to let Chicago just do its thing. Bad at being a mob boss, worse at doing his taxes. <laughs> so then he went and Scarface went away for a while you know time out for Scarface and then after Al Capone went away for tax evasion the mob sort of started thinking and regrouped and it's like do you really want a hot mess like Scarface running things you know if you're bringing a lot of heat and frankly the whole syphilitic dementia thing wasn't neat didn't mean he was always the most strategic of people so after Capone went away, the mob reformed as the slick, professional Chicago outfit. No must, no fuss, some drama, but not as much, nearly as much. They just were more about smooth operation and keeping this thing humming than making big splashes. Now, as, as things started to change, they sort of realized in about the 50s, the uh, organized crime sort of started realizing, you know, We've got these really great relationships with elected officials, but they can change. People can move. People can lose elections, et cetera. You know, it'll be easier than that. You know, you know, it'll be better than having close ties with elected officials being ah. elected officials. So you knew, so you knew exactly 1950s, who was going to be. According to the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Starting in the 1950s, uh, they started to get members of the mafia, made men and capos or capos. I don't, I've only seen it written. And one of them's a, one of them's on a guitar thing. One of them's an organized crime thing. So yeah. capos or capos, whatever. Yeah. We start getting them elected to political positions in <clears throat> Illinois and, and, and Chicago. Uh, John DiArco, according to the FBI, uh, was elected to state Senate. Um, he, um, you know, the made man, the mob. A guy named Fred Rohde, many years, was first ward alderman. I'm talking through the 90s. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, he was, according to the FBI, a made man or a capo capo with the organized crime. So the sent first ward was sort of this nexus. Of, and first ward is, used to be downtown. Uh, they moved, When they did the redistricting um, in the 90s after a lot of these trials came out, uh, which I'll get to next. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> they actually physically moved the first ward out of the area. <laughs> first ward's more like Bucktown Wicker Park, which is where the hipsters live now. Uh, but they, so they actually gerrymandered for good. <laughs> in, in this but that, but they that was that was just the, first, the political organization the hell away from Fred Rohde. So that was that was just because it had been for so long, so steadily a seat that the mob could that organized crime interest controlled. Of course not. It was to give greater representation for the people of the city of Chicago. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Please, please continue. <laughs> now, um, 
we're missing we're missing one very great story here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, a lot of this came because of what was called Operation Gambat. 80s, this mob lawyer, the scumbag of scumbags, guy who um, he he the the mob at the time was run by a man named Pat Marcy, who on paper was just like some political position, the secretary of the first war democratic organization. But in the meantime, he ran the Chicago outfit and through Fred Rohde, who he'd tell him how to vote and how to get everyone to vote, ran City Hall. So then this guy, this mob lawyer, Cooley, one day he walked into the FBI offices at the Dirksen Center. He wanted to wear a wire. He approached the FBI hmm. about wanting to wear a wire. Um, and of course, the reasoning was now, uh, Pat Marcy had ordered him to defend a mob-connected bodybuilder who'd beaten up a female cop, put her in the hospital. Cooley was from a family of Irish cops. Mm. He started thinking, gave him a crisis of conscience. His heart grew three sizes that day, (laughs) and he started realizing that he was following the path of sin. (laughs) Uh, Other people pointed out that uh, it, it being the 1980s, a lot of the mob's profit was going up Robert Cooley's nose. Uh, and that Robert Cooley had a uh, gambling problem and sort of gambling with Bob's money. Um, I don't believe that. I mean, he did, but I don't believe that was the pure motivation because, you know, that's a hell of a way to discredit someone. Yeah. Uh, just saying, no, oh, he's a rat. You're yelling at him on the sand, he's a rat, he's a rat. He um, just saving his own skin. You know, he's trying to just get ahead of the mob before they find him floating face down in Bubbly Creek. I don't know what happened. I don't know if Robert Cooley saw the light or the writing on the wall, but I know what he did. Mm-hmm. Wore a wire for three and a half years. Wow. Every day, get up, uh, put on a wire using the greatest of 19, early 1980s hidden microcassette recorder technology. Jesus. Um, and just informing his bosses. Now, it, it, it is interesting to point out the name of the operation was Operation Gambat which means the FBI didn't quite believe his come to Jesus story. Yeah. Uh, it stood for gambling attorney. <laughs> now they were all, it wasn't just his wire. There are all these wires all over town. They, the FBI wired the booth that Fred Rohde always ate at, uh, for lunch when he, when we go out for lunch after, uh, city council meetings, uh, bo- the wiring of booth one at this restaurant called counselors row. A busboy actually found that wire, which sort of tipped the FBI's hand that something was going on. So there was this huge uh, political scandal. All these people were arrested, you know, Rhodey, Diarco, though he died before he could serve, uh, or before his trial date, uh, Diarco did. Um, mm-hmm. Cops, lawyers, politicians. And uh, yeah, so they were all arrested. And now that's sort of a lot of the political ties uh, for people, for your listeners who are more interested in finding out the, uh, a lot of more of like what happened to the mob. Cause the mob, whatever is left is not nearly at the strength it was. Sure. Um, a lot of that also has to do with a, a separate trial in the early 2000s called the family secrets trial, which I don't really cover in my tours cause it's more straight up mob than just politics than gotcha. politics slash mob. But um, it's a hell of a story. A guy testified against his own dad in it. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, uh, tell him to Google Family Secrets Trial after that and Operation Gambit. Uh, so, yeah, so those are those are two of the big stories about how uh, sort of the rise and fall of the connection of uh, 
organized crime and, and Illinois politics. It's not as simple as that. That's basically the Reader's Digest version, sort of uh, going from the 1890s to the 1990s. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, uh, you have certainly knocked it out of the park for what I wanted in this kind of conversation. Uh, uh, I want everybody, if you are in the Chicago area, to please go to 1001 Chicago. That is 1001chicago.com slash corruption. That is where you can get tickets for uh, Paul's walking tour, which is uh, three hours that I the, the next time I'm in Chicago, Paul, we, uh, I'm on this tour. I, I want uh, uh, so, so, so much more of this. And hopefully this has provided a little uh, background for folks uh, because Chicago remains to this day a, a, a political hot mess. Right. <laughs> it is definitely a political hot mess. Um the Jesse Smollett thing is about, in my mind, the third or fourth most interesting political story going on right now. So, which is insane it is because it's because that's that's an international story that just took this totally mysterious left uh, uh, at at the eleventh hour. Oh, all right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm glad we got the, the, the history lesson in there so we can all look at it with more informed eyes. Paul Daling has been my guest. Paul, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>